Sunday morning, we're going through Second Peter together. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up with the, the aisles with Bibles, lots of Bibles, and they'd be happy to get one into your hand this morning. Just raise your hand and get their attention, and they'll get one to you. And, of course, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you. Second Peter, chapter 2, we'll pick things up in verse 18. And Peter is speaking in this chapter about false teachers. And so he says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened, some of the most descriptive language in the Bible, but it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, a pig having been washed, to her wallowing in the mire. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for this chapter, and it's so dense with warning And we acknowledge that those warnings are important for our lives and for every age of Christians in human history. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless our time in this chapter 2 and that you would forever uh, inoculate us and protect us through this chapter ministered by your Spirit to our hearts from ever falling prey to false teaching or false teachers and all of the darkness and the bondage that is found there. We look to you for that. Give us understanding of this passage, and we pray that by your Spirit it would do the necessary thing that it is intended to do in each one of our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When we began chapter 2 of Second Peter, I referred to this section of Peter's letter, which is dedicated to warning us about false teaching and false teachers. It's really an inoculation against that, uh, against that, a protection. And when we are given a vaccine or a, a, uh, an inoculation, an antigen is introduced into our uh, body that our body then develops antibodies against that so that if we ever do get exposed to that particular disease, our body is able to rise up and knock it out. And so that's what Peter is doing here. Little did probably any of you know that uh, there would be a, an initial inoculation and four booster shots afterwards. Uh, but so here we are, and we come to the last booster shot this morning in uh, wrapping up this section of Peter's teaching. Now, in these verses, Peter continues to describe the characteristics of false teachers, but in doing that, he also does something else that's very important, and that is he also reveals to us something about 
those who become the followers of false teachers. And as a result, uh, the personal responsibility that they have forever following a false teacher. And the lesson here is that just as there's something wrong with a false teacher that is deeper than his false teaching, there is also something deeply wrong with someone who considers themselves to be a Christian and actually is a Christian, that's who he's talking about here, who then falls prey to a false teacher and gets drawn into false teaching. Without followers, these false teachers, of course, would have no following and they would have no power or influence and they'd be no threat at all. So those that follow these false teachers, they have a considerable responsibility for doing that. And Peter wants them and wants us to know that as well. And so this morning we look at some of the characteristics that can make a person, even a Christian, vulnerable to false teaching so that we can examine our own lives, recognize those same tendencies, uh, maybe in our own lives, and then be doubly uh, careful about who we expose ourselves to and who we allow to become uh, an influence in our lives. Number one, in that we go back to verse 14 for this, false teachers are most successful in deceiving someone who is an unstable soul. That's how uh, Peter puts it. And so uh, he says they entice unstable souls. And false teachers are very, very good at what they do. And there's a certain kind of person that they know they're going to be most successful in pulling into their false doctrine, and that is a person who is an unstable soul. So it raises the question, who in the world and what in the world and is an unstable soul and what does it look like? And, uh, and, and what an unstable soul is, is something that's unstable. Something that's unstable is something that isn't firmly fixed to a strong foundation. And so here he's speaking about Christians who fail to become grounded deeply in God's Word. And uh, there's a humorous kind of example of this kind of person in an illustration that I'm fond of, uh, a collection of unstable souls. And there was a candidate who came before a church membership uh, council and he wanted to have a membership in the church and he was asked, what part of the Bible do you like best? And he said, oh, I like the New Testament best. And then he was asked, what book of the New Testament is your favorite? And he says, oh, the book of parables, sir. And then they asked him to relate one of the parables to the membership committee. And he was a little uncertain, but he began. He said, once upon a time, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves. And the thorns grew up and choked the man. And he went on and he met the queen of Sheba and she gave that man, sir, a thousand talents of silver and a hundred changes of raiment. And he got in his chariot and he drove furiously. And he was driving along under a big tree and his hair got caught in a limb and left him hanging there. And he hung there many days and many nights. The ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And one night while he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came and cut off his hair and he fell on stony ground. And it began to rain and rain, and it rained 40 days and 40 nights, and he hid himself in a cave. And later he went on and he met a man who said, Come in and take supper with me. But he said, I can't come in, for I've married a wife. 
And a man, the man went out on the highways and hedges and he compelled them to come in. Then he came to Jerusalem and he saw Queen Jezebel sitting high and lifted up in the window of a wall. And when she saw him, she laughed. And he said, throw her down out of there. And they threw her down. And he said, throw her down again. And they threw her down 70 times 7. And the fragments which they picked up filled 12 baskets full. (laughs) Now whose wife will she be in the day of judgment? And the membership committee uh, unanimously agreed that the man was indeed a knowledgeable candidate for membership in the church. Well, those are unstable souls. And the solution to, always a solution to becoming an unstable soul, Jesus told us, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And the most important thing that we can do as Christians in order to not be an unstable soul, if the thing that brings stability to us is for our roots and our foundation to go deep into the Word of God, is to know the Word of God very, very well. And uh, the level level of uh, biblical literacy, I don't talk necessarily about any of you personally, but the level of biblical literacy among Christians in the United States of America is absolutely appalling. It really is. And, um, and there's a terrible price that gets paid for that. The Bible is intended to be the single most influential book in our lives as Christians because it is the supreme way by which we come to know the God that we love and has saved us and that we worship. And so to know this Bible better than we know any other book, any other movie, any other person, any other politician, any other entertainer, any other person in our life to know this book and have it be the most influential thing in our life is what God intends it to be. And you talk about one of the great things Pastor David shared a little bit yesterday from Christian biography, and it's fabulous to read Christian biography out of our age And you realize how deep people, before they were distracted by all of the things that we're distracted by, how deep they were in the Word of God. Reading it in the original languages, sometimes as regular Christians, not even teaching the Bible. But it's so important that the Word of God have that kind of place in our lives. And that comes through a devotional time with the Lord every day, our own personal reading of the Bible. And then uh, just between us and him, out of our relationship. So here I am. I'm a pastor. Before I was a pastor, I was an elder in a church, and then I was a deacon in a church and all. But um, my devotional time with the Lord and the time that I spend in studying the Word of God and then the time that's spent in sermon preparation, those don't mix. My relationship with God is my relationship with God, and everything else flows out of that relationship. And so we don't merge all these things together. So that time of just spent, I love you, I know you love me, God, I want to get to know you better, and that time spent in prayer, reading his word, and growing in our relationship with him every morning is so important. And it's one of the ways the word of God becomes that 
most influential place. But it doesn't need to stop there. And I think we have to be, uh, as Christians, to realize that's a starting point and that's an important, necessary thing in all of our lives because Christianity is a relationship. It's all about a relationship with God. And we cannot have a relationship, a healthy or a deep relationship with someone that we're not talking to on a daily basis, that we are not interacting with on a daily basis. And so it is with God. But not just our devotional life, but then also additional study of the Word of God. None of us should ever be frightened to see a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon come to our doorstep uh, or none of us should ever be in a place where we don't know how to lead another person to Christ or when we run into somebody for the first time and they're in, you know, maybe some kind of a holiness movement or they're in Jesus-only doctrine or all these different kinds of things. When we hit those things as new Christians and as we go along and we say, wow, I've never heard that before and I want to know how to respond to that biblically, those are always opportunities to go deeper in the Word of God, to learn the Word of God so that we have an answer for these things and, and these kind of questions that come up, they force us in the study of the Word. And I think it's, so there's that thing of the devotional life, but then also to become a student of the Word, to, to learn what does it, you know, what does it mean to be foreordained? What does it mean to be elected? What does it mean, uh, you know, for, uh, to be sanctified? What does it mean to be justified? And to, and to work in a way where we have what what I would call a working knowledge of the Scriptures. And you look at the men and women that God used in the book of Acts, and they were very conversant in the Scriptures. These were things they knew well. Things could come up, and in a moment's notice, they would know what the Bible had to say about this particular issue. So they had a working knowledge of the Scriptures that it was so real and deep and a part of their life that they could just speak it forth into any kind of situation. And we need to always be growing in that until the day that we get to be with the Lord. And today, you know, the same instruments that keep us from becoming deep in the Lord, um, you know, just whiling, frittering away the time on the Internet or, you know, on Facebook or... And I'm not saying these things are wrong in of themselves, but they can become an obsession or on, you know, the texting and the tweeting and all of these different things. But this technology is so much time can get sucked away by it, but there's, we have access to so much today, uh, through those venues. When I was a brand new Christian, uh, <laughs> they were selling eight tracks, uh, for your car. And, uh, and that was the new mode of, you know, information. And then they came out with cassette tapes. And we used to, as brand new Christians, we would just almost, I don't know what we would do. We wouldn't kill somebody, but something short of that, to get a hold of a cassette tape by Walter Martin or by Chuck Smith or by someone else that we, you know, we knew and we respected, but we wanted, we're so eager to learn and, and, Cassette tapes at that time were just kind of happening a little bit and hard to get a hold of. We'd listen to them over and over and over again. Now you can go online, 
you can stream or download onto an MP3 or onto a disc or stream right on the computer or on a phone or whatever. Some of the greatest teachers and teaching that's going on all around the world. I mean, what is available to us to go deep in the Lord is phenomenal. And it is a the single greatest protection against ever being fooled by uh, false teachers and being pulled into it. I, I guarantee you the reason that they're successful with unstable souls and they target unstable souls is that they have virtually no success with people who are deeply grounded in the Word of God. And once, once I'm familiar with God and my relationship with Him is based upon the revelation of the Scriptures... Uh, anyone can come to my doorstep. So I, I'm sitting in my office at my, at my house and I see uh, two you know, Jehovah Witnesses come up to the front door or, or two Mormons. And they're easy to spot because they have a certain appearance or they have the name tags or something and you say, okay. And I don't like, oh no, you know, anything like that. I'm happy to answer the door. And... I'm so excited about my life with Christ, they have no chance of converting me. And uh, so, so they've got to plant some seed of dissatisfaction in my life with where I am right now in order to tell me how what they have is better. But I tell them, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm a whosoever that's believed in Him. I've got a relationship with God. Pinch me. I can't believe the life that I get to live every day. Now, what were you going to come to my doorstep and tell me about with this God? I guarantee you I have with God what they're still looking for. And I don't say it condescendingly, but it protects us from ever being pulled into anything. When you have had the best, then you don't get pulled into something that is second best, and all of this is a far drop down from second best. So the importance of the Word of God and, and what a protection it is for us. The second characteristic in verse 18 of those who are most vulnerable uh, to being deceived by false teachers is that this kind, it's the kind of person that is uh, highly emotional in their thinking and in their processing and in their decision-making. And I know we talked a little bit about it last week, but Peter repeats himself, and so I'm going to do the same. So there's a certain kind of person who is more emotional in their thinking uh, rather than being biblical in their thinking or even logical in their thinking. And so we're told of these false teachers in verse 18. They speak great swelling words of emptiness. Uh, Knox, a Greek scholar, he translates it this way. They use fine, pra- fine phrases that have no meaning. You say, well, I'd like to have an example of that. Well, Bill McDonald, in his excellent commentary... He gave an example of this kind of thing, and he uh, cited a a well-known theologian of our our day, and here is uh, the quote from that theologian as he gave this address. He said, It is not a relationship of either parity or disparity, but of similarity. 
And this is what we think and this is what we express as the true knowledge of God. Although in faith we still know and remember that everything that we know as similarity is not identical with the similarity meant here. Yet we also know and remember, and again in faith, that the similarity meant here is pleased to reflect itself in what we know as similarity and call by this name so that in our thinking and speaking, similarity becomes similar to the similarity posited in the true revelation of God to which it is in itself not similar. And we do not think and speak falsely, but rightly when we describe the relationship as one of similarity. Now, there's one kind of person who listens to that and thinks, what in the world is that man talking about? And then there's another personality entirely different that thinks, wow. And I'm not putting that personality down because both personalities have strengths and weaknesses. The one personality, the danger is that they'll become cynical about everything in life. The other personality, the wild personality, the danger is that they'll be credulous and vulnerable to anything anybody says as long as they say it with great flourish and great education and, and great uh, uh, oratory abilities. There's that the false teachers, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. But this second kind of person, the wild person, it not only doesn't recognize that, but they're impressed by it. And it's the kind of person who's more impressed with how something is said than by what something, uh, what is being said. And they tend to think with their hearts rather than with their minds, and they're more susceptible to being swayed by beautiful speech. And they are highly emotional in their thinking and in their processing and in their decision-making as opposed to being more logical. And I'm not making fun of them. I mean, it, It takes the whole group to make the world go round. And each person can bring glory to God. But if you are that kind of person with that kind of tendency, then you need to be aware that that is a tendency in your life. And it's a dangerous tendency in your life. And you need to be extra careful to be biblical in your thinking as a result. This epidemic of thinking with our hearts rather than with our minds has become so prevalent in our culture that um, a new word was coined in 2005 to express it, and it's the word truthiness. Some of you might uh, have remembered when that was back in 2005 and the Colbert Report, Steve Colbert, he's a, a comedian, a quasi-comedian, and I, I don't recommend him, uh, but uh, he coined the word truthiness uh, back in that in that time. And then in 2006, uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary named it the word of the year, truthiness. And uh, Steve Colbert, he defined truthiness in this way in a 60-minute interview. He said, truthiness is what you want the facts to be as opposed to what the facts are. What feels like the right answer as opposed to what reality will support Merriam-Webster defines truthiness as the quality of seeming to be true, even if it contradicts evidence or rational thought. 
The American Dialect uh, Society defined it this way, the quality of preferring concepts or facts one wishes to be true rather than concepts or facts known to be true. There's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in all of this, certainly on Mr. Colbert's part, but the best humor is always humor that has a little bit of truth in it, and it's even a pushback on the part of comedians against this whole prevalence of thinking emotionally rather than logically or rationally within our uh, culture. And, and so this whole idea of emotional thinking, the pushback that occurred, and this, uh, the heart leaving the mind rather than the mind leaving and more importantly as a result safeguarding the heart. The problem with this trend today of following one's heart above all and minimizing uh, rational thought and careful thought is that the Bible teaches that the mind can't be trusted. The carnal mind, or the heart, the carnal heart in and of itself is untrustworthy. It is never to be given a place above above the mind. Jesus said, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And then probably the most stark um, statement by God and the whole Bible on this uh, subject was the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17:9? For the heart is deceitful above all things. It lies, and it is desperately wicked. So it's not to be trusted as something that leads us in life. And so our heart, our emotions, they are wonderful f- part of who we are and what we are, but our emotions are not to be trusted They are fallen and they need to be safeguarded by the Word of God. And that's the safeguard, is to test not only every thought, but to test every emotion that we have by the standard of the Word of God. The Bible says test all things, not just thoughts, but also what we're feeling, what we're being drawn into. We live in a world that is very good at attempting to bypass our thinking and appeal to us emotionally. Billions and billions of dollars are spent a year to accomplish that and to do to people to make them make emotional decisions that they would never make if they stopped and and gave even five minutes thought to what they were doing. And they know how to bypass that. So we live in a world that's like that. And it's not just in order to sell us a car or to sell us a blender or something like that. But also this goes on in the spiritual realm as well. Everything is to be uh, tested by the Word of God. I love Acts uh, chapter 17, verse 11. The Apostle Paul was on one of his missionary journeys, and he came to a city named Berea. And he began to teach the Word of God there in the city of Berea. And he declared concerning the Christians there in Berea, he said, Now the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians, for they received the word of God with all readiness of mind and then searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. The Apostle Paul goes in among this group of Christians that had never been before them before. He begins to lay out the case for Jesus as the Messiah, many other things. They listened politely to him, but they did not even believe the teaching 
of the great apostle Paul until they had tested it by the word of God, found it to match the word of God, then they embraced the truth. And the apostle Paul was not offended by that. He wasn't put off by that. Don't you know who I am? I'm the apostle Paul. He said he commended them for it that they were even more noble than other places he had gone to for that characteristic. And it is a commendable uh, characteristic in our lives to demand a biblical basis for everything. And so testing our thoughts, our emotions by the Word of God, it really does keep us safe in a world that's full of false teachers and false teaching. Number three, those who are most vulnerable to false teachers are those who have some lust of the flesh that can be appealed to. And you notice at the latter part of verse 18, the false teachers allure through the lusts of the flesh through lewdness. And so the false teachers appeal to those who desire a Christianity that will allow them to continue in their sin. They are looking for a teacher who will teach in a way that accommodates their sin and goes easy on their sin so they won't feel like they have to give that sin up. And so the false teachers, of course, they'll be very happy to take and explain away all of the commandments of God as is necessary all of his requirements related to holiness or Christ-likeness or repentance or individual sins that the Bible talks about. They become very, very good at deflecting away from that or attempting to explain away the demands of the Scriptures. And so they'll then tell Christians that you can lie and you can steal and you can be sexually immoral or you can be whatever, still be right with God. I mean, after all, nobody's perfect and you don't need to repent and bring all of those lustful desires, uh, repent of those lustful desires. You can bring all of them into your relationship with God. Nothing needs to change. You just need to trust in Jesus. And however you live your life, you'll end up in heaven. And so this is the kind of message. And there's a certain kind of person who is eager to hear that message. And they are eager to believe that message when, when they do. It's a fascinating thing, and it's a, it's a troubling thing, where you have young people who are raised in this church or in churches just like it, where there's a great emphasis upon the Word of God and obedience to God. I mean, it's the greatest life. Why would, I, why would we teach anything less than that? And then they get out there into some other place, and they get exposed to some other teaching, and now this person comes along and, and says, oh, no, those people are way too strict. What kind of a church did you grow up in and all this and that and all? And they think to themselves, wow, was I in some kind of a crazy sect or something? And there's people are telling me, I can do everything I want to do. And it's all okay with God, you know. And they can get fooled for a while until they become a casualty of the sin. And, and then they come bouncing uh, back because God won't let let go of them. And so the false teacher appeals to this kind of person because they love the same sins that the false teacher loves and the same sins that the false teacher refuses to denounce or dear to them. And, and so they then are as responsible in all of this as the false teacher. And Peter said, and Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy, he said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. 
uh, talking about professing Christianity. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They're as culpable as the false teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And there's an awful lot of that stuff going on even to this day. It's good for us to ask ourselves, do I have some lust of the flesh that I am not willing to accept as sin or to repent of and that I am actively looking for someone in a religious position to tell me it's okay as opposed to what the Bible says. And what you need to know if you're in that place is you are on the search for a false teacher. And if you ever find a teacher who will accommodate you related to your sin, explain away some lust of our flesh as being nothing in the eyes of God, then we have found a false teacher. And, and yet uh, that, that's what makes this person susceptible. They have some sin they want to hold on to, and yet they still want to have a relationship with God. Where can I find that church or where can I find that teacher? I always get a little alarmed when I talk with someone who claims to know the Lord, and they, um, uh, they want to debate me on the issue of smoking marijuana as a Christian. Uh, or living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend as a Christian, or whatever the issue might be. And I realize I'm dealing with a person here who has not settled the issue of Jesus' lordship in their life. And that type of person is on the search for a false teacher. And the problem is, is you can find one today that will accommodate your sin, but it leads you into a very, very dark place and to a very, very bad uh, place. And it's good to ask ourselves, when I choose a church or who I'm going to make my pastor or spiritual influence in my life, am I looking for someone who will flatter me or someone who will teach me the whole Word of God, no matter how convicting that might be? And I think that it's important to say today, and it's a, a subtlety of our age, False teachers, and I've already said it a couple of times in this little short little series right here, but it bears repeating again in this context. You can't identify all false teachers by what they say. Some of them are far more clever than that. And what you have to do is you have to learn to identify them by what they don't say, what they refuse to say or refuse to teach from the Word of God. And you have a whole world of, of ministers. I don't say they're a majority or that there's zillions of them, but there's plenty of them, and they're very, very influential, who will not speak on the subject of sin or repentance or denial of self or individual sins and the importance of repenting of those individual sins. They leave all of that aside. Everything's got to be positive. Everything's got to be affirming. And uh, everything's got to be man-centered rather than God-centered. And the people have to always leave the service happy uh, with themselves no matter how sinful their life might be. And that's happening. And that's a major model for ministry in the world today. And when you look at somebody and somebody refuses to confront sin and to call us to repentance, which is a privilege, by the way, 
uh, and wants to accommodate me in my continued drinking or my continued sexual immorality or my continued what, you're dealing with someone who is a false teacher, just much harder to recognize. Number four, another kind of person uh, uh, who will find themselves particularly vulnerable to false teaching is the person who views God's word and his commandments as restrictive, you notice in verse 19. So the false teacher will promise them liberty. That is, you don't have to take everything in the Bible seriously. And, uh, and that if you feel that the Bible is too restrictive in some area of your life, then you're free to disregard it. There's a certain kind of person who views the commandments of God as it relates to holiness or as it relates to uh, obedience and holy living and holy thinking. They view the commandments of God as being restrictive rather than liberating. And they've got it exactly backwards. But this kind of person exists. And they look at all of when God says, Thou shalt not and thou shalt, and they see all of that as somehow being a restrictive thing in their life. And, liber- you know, it's, it's holding them back from the full expression of their personality and all of their gifts and all of their everything. And what they don't realize is that God puts all of those as our creator, knowing us like nobody else knows us. He puts in all of the thou shalts and all of the sh- thou shalt nots for our protection in our lives. It, sin is the old, old saying goes, sin is not, is not bad because it's forbidden. It is forbidden because it's bad. But this kind of person will not accept that. They still think that they're smarter uh, than, than God. And so in their minds, obedience to God's word or being serious about obeying uh, God and in the relationship with him, to them it's all legalism. And to them a relationship with God is all about them. It's not about God. God exists for the sole purpose of fulfilling their self-consumed and their self-absorbed life. And in their minds a relationship with God should never be demanding. God should accommodate every desire of their flesh and and this should be a partnership of equals in this relationship with God. And the relationship with God should always be on their terms and not on God's terms. And that kind of person is going to find there's no shortage of false teachers that will tell them that's okay. And then they'll fall prey to their message. And they'll find a teacher that doesn't condemn sin and doesn't love God enough to do that and love people enough to do that and does not condemn uh, selfishness. And this kind of person will actually believe that they've discovered something new, some enlightened, progressive, open-minded version of Christianity. The liberal denominations are all born out of this kind of thinking. We're smarter than God. All of these restrictive commands that God gives when we know better. And now we head into this progressive, enlightened, open-minded version of Christianity. And what they don't realize is that what they've actually done is to set themselves up to become slaves of the sin and of the selfishness that they have worked so hard to protect. Sin and selfishness do not lead to liberty They always lead to bondage. This skin 
on my body constitutes the smallest prison and the tightest prison in the whole world. To live for self and selfishness is a prison. It's bondage. And to live for sin is equally a bondage. And so God gives us his commandments so that we won't live our lives within those limitations and the darkness of of all of that. He wants to free us from the bondage of sin and from selfishness. And that's why Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Every time we obey one of God's commandments, we are stepping into freedom. Every time I disobey his commandments, I am stepping into bondage. That's just the way that it is. And, and this kind of person will not accept that. They still think they're smarter than God. They haven't yet learned the two great truths of the universe. Number one, there is a God. And number two, you are not him. And sometimes that's a hard lesson to learn but it's an important one uh, to learn. I think it's important to realize, and I, I'm getting more and more and more of this now in, in this age, and I've been pastoring since 1985, this whole idea that Christians who are serious about their relationship with the Lord and they love the Lord and they want to please Him and they want unbroken fellowship and relationship with Him, And so they live an obedient life, not a perfectly obedient life. We all trip and fall and we fall short. One day in heaven we won't, but they're serious about obeying God and his commandments. And more and more we're being viewed as some kind of a group of, you know, ultra too serious, fanatic, crazy people. And that there's this whole other version of Christianity that, that our version of Christianity is putting off the world. They won't accept that they won't come in and it won't appeal to them. So they won't become Christians. You have to move away from that kind of thing and, and do a softer sell related to, to Christianity. So more and more, more and more people look at someone like me and they view me as a legalist. And what they don't understand is what a legalist is and what a legalist isn't. A legalist is someone who takes a command of the Word of God and they add man-made demands on top of it. They make the command of God more demanding than it already is, as if God doesn't know how to communicate how demanding He wants His commandments to be. Legalism is not a person taking seriously the commandments of God's word and then obeying them. But more and more, that kind of person is being viewed as extreme or as a legalist when that person is nothing of the sort. And so I say, if you are in that kind of a place where you view God's word as restrictive and it's crimping your style and all of your potential and all of those kinds of things, and that it's legalistic. You're going to certainly hear that kind of thing in this world. And from Christian teachers who claim to be Christian, then you need to realize this really sets you up for, for uh, deception. Father knows best. And it's not just true of a TV show. If it was true of a TV show, it's more true of God the Father. We don't know what we're doing in this world 
and the world is an evidence of that. It's on display for us every single day. And the world is in the condition that it is in on a large scale because it is a reflection of the individual condition of individuals in the world. You don't know what's good for you. I don't know what's good for me. God knows what's good for us, and he knows what will keep us safe. His commandments are not restrictive. They are protective, and they are life-giving, and they lead us out into a life of freedom. And then in verses 20 through 22, Peter closes this section with a very strong reminder, warning against backsliding into our former life under the influence of false teachers. So again, there's this whole thing of lowering the standard of God's Scripture. This, that's fanatical. That's crazy. What do you mean you have to give up this or you have to give up that in order to represent Christ and all? And, and, and so the, the whole idea is that, is that you don't have to take these things uh, uh, seriously. And so when you come under that kind of teaching and you begin to believe that kind of teaching and obey that kind of false teaching, then the inevitable is we become a backslider. And he's talking about people who knew better. They had a certain kind of quality of life with Christ, and yet they had these areas that they still want to indulge in their flesh. And, and so they find a teacher that tells them that all of that is okay, and then the next thing you know, uh, they're back in their former sins and uh, in this thing that's called backsliding. And so Peter <laughs> is a very hip, hip, hooray for Peter. And, I mean, he really endeavors to slam the door here on backsliding. He says, if we do that, if we listen to false teachers that tell us it's okay to return back to our former sins, he said, the latter end is worse than the beginning. And, and to return to the sin that God once delivered us out of when we got saved is worse than when we engaged in those sins before we became Christians because now we know better. Before we kind of knew better. We kind of knew it was wrong. In some cases we didn't even know at all that it was wrong. But now we know better than we didn't know better. So we are more responsible for going back to those sins after God has cleaned us up, made us into a different kind of person, and, and then to return to those sins. I think that it's also important to realize that it's very dangerous for a Christian to go back to practicing our old sins because it can be even harder to pull out of them the second time. And that, that's a reality about backsliding. Sometimes uh, to backslide, go back into those old sins, it puts us back into bondage. It can be a lot harder to come out that, that second time. And sometimes God will allow that to happen. He'll make it hard to keep us from ever backsliding again. I was talking to a man even recently who came back from the Lord, knew the Lord, loved the Lord, had a great walk with the Lord. And he went off this whole thing. He didn't, I don't think he needed to come under any false teacher. He just came under the false teaching in his own heart. We've got a false teacher that lives inside of us. And he began to go back into the old sins, still thinking he can fashion his own relationship with God. Doesn't need the Bible. I'll go, I'll live this kind of life and it'll be okay with God and I'll get into heaven. And then ultimately he's taken back into the bondage of the same sins that had him in bondage before. 
And then when he hit bottom, once again, like he did before he came to know Christ, he then turned back to the Lord. But he said, you know, he said, this time it was a lot harder. He said, when I turned back this time, that intimacy with God, the ability to just raise my hands and to worship the Lord and to be singing like we're close and all of that, he said, God didn't give that back to me immediately. It took a while before God gave that back to me. And he said, and I, he said, I know why God did it. So I would treat it as something precious and never throw it away again. And sometimes the Lord does it that way. Now, if you're backslidden today, come back to the Lord now. Whatever, that's the right step to take. Whatever God decides to do and you're returning from a backslide. But it is very, very true The latter end is worse than at the beginning sometimes. He likens backsliding to a dog returning to his own vomit. Very picturesque uh, language and and, uh, more than uh, picturesque language if you've ever owned a dog. Um, (laughs) You ever watch a dog eat something disgusting? I love dogs. I love them better than just about any other animal. Of course, a deer out in the field, that's pretty good too. I don't shoot them. You shoot them. I don't shoot them. I just look at them. But a dog, dogs are wonderful things. But sometimes before you can get to them, they ate it. You can't believe they ate that. That's so disgusting. Don't come near me and lick me for six weeks. You ate that. And he's looking up at you. (laughs) They don't understand. He said, it just can't get any worse than that. And it does. Because what they ate makes them sick and they throw it up on the concrete. You say, it can't get any worse than that. And it does. An hour later, they re-eat it. Now, you know that. That's true about dogs. They do that. You say, why would you go back and re-eat something that made you sick the first time and made you throw up? And God says from heaven, why in the world would you go back to any sin that made you sick the first time and go back and eat it a second time. So what kind of disgusts us and confuses us as it relates to a dog, God looks at and says, that's how we look at things up in heaven, related to backsliding and going back to those things. Then you've got the illustration of a pig. You wash a pig, Wilbur. We're talking about real pigs. You wash up a pig, the first chance it gets, all shiny and clean for the 4-H at the fair, for the ribbons, and then it just makes a run to the mud of the pig pen. I don't know if you've ever watched a pig in the mire. um, Part of my resume for becoming a pastor is I, I ran the rabbit and poultry building for the Napa Town and Country Fair for a number of years. It was nothing, really. But in the building next to us was the 4-H building for the big livestock. So they had all the cows and the horses and, and then the pigs. And they had so many pigs and the sheep and so many pigs. We just walk up and down there. They're just so disgusting. I love to eat them. But in real life, I mean, you just look at them and they're snorting and just snorting over one another and... And they lie down and, and 
in it, they don't care what they lie down in, any kind of refuse or mire or slop. And then I realize I'm seeing 4-H pigs here at the county fair. I'm seeing that they're very, very best. And so here it's cleaned up, washed of the mire, the slop, the refuse that he's lived in. And it's all he knew. He didn't know any better. And then to be cleaned up and to know better and return a second time, God says it's all the more disgusting. And basically Peter's saying to go backwards and backsliding is to return to life on the animal plane. It's to just live like an animal. I lived like an animal before I came to know Christ. A fairly domesticated animal. But still an animal. And this is what it is. To just whatever my thoughts tell me, whatever my heart tells me, whatever my urges tell me to go ahead and fulfill that. That's to live on the level of an animal. And, that, and then to return to that is to return into that kind of life. It reduces us to living like an animal. And so Peter writes these things in order to protect us. The Christian life is the greatest life a person can live. And I'm thankful for the privilege. And holiness is not a bad word when we understand the living definition of holiness is Christ. Every one of these commandments in this book makes us more like Christ. Now, you can't find anything wrong with a commandment that makes us more like Christ, and it leads us into freedom, and it leads us into life. So that's our final booster shot related to false teachers. I don't mind leaving the subject at this point. But a lot has been laid in these recent weeks, and I just pray it forever protects us from false teaching as as individuals, and I know that it will. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, never put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. God has a relationship with you waiting. Just waiting wants to begin a relationship with you. And there's hope for you. No matter what kind of life you're living, no matter how animalistic, no matter how in bondage to sin you might be, this is, the, this is what God does. This is his specialty. This is what he loves to do, to save lives and, and to, to give us forgiveness of our sins and then to put a new nature inside of us. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. He gives us a fresh start. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit to make the most of that fresh start. And so God wants to begin a relationship with you. There is hope for you this morning. And there's life as God intends for you this morning. And the pastors and other men and women are going to be up in front after the service. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God today. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, it breaks our heart to see anyone go from the truth, go from reality of a relationship with you, and to be pulled into false teaching. And Lord, I I can't tell you that I even remotely know how much it breaks your heart. After all you invest in a human life, to be pulled away by these kinds of people and these kind of things. And Lord, I just pray, and we all do for one another, that these four weeks that we've spent in this chapter too,
that it really would forever protect us from ever being pulled away into all of this severely inferior stuff that is posing as Christianity today. Continue to lead us by your Holy Spirit into what this is really all about. We love the life that we have. We love the relationship we have with you, Lord. We just want that to get richer and deeper and to go further and further into the blessings of obedience to your word. And we ask you continue by your Holy Spirit to lead us into the fullness of this life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.